the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Back, America. Hugh Hewitt. Joined by some old friends, Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes. They own the franchise. The franchise begun by T.H. White, the election of the president. And now John and Amy have done it again. They have a brand new book out, Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency, which I inhaled over the last two weeks. It's a bestseller. Congratulations, John and Amy. Uh, are you uh, are you committed, Amy Parnes, to doing a third one? <laughs> I defer to John Allen on that one, but, um, but I, I don't know. We'll see. TBD. What do you think, John? I asked you that two weeks ago. Now that you're over the initial shock of the... Uh, the book tour. Have you begun on the next sequel? Uh, we've not begun on the next sequel, uh, but <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, I want to leave a little mystery for everyone. I think we'll continue to write books, um, and I suspect uh, they will involve politics. Yeah, I, I think that when you get a franchise and you got two bestsellers in a row, never give up the franchise. Now, I could just fill you with accolades and tell you how wonderful the book is because it is, but I'd rather argue with you. And so let, let's go to the parts of the book that, that uh, I have a disagreement with. First of all, first debate. I love the color, like the staples in the Biden green room are orange Gatorade and Diet Coke. That's great reporting. Were either of you in the green room? No. No. How do you find out something like that? We, we ask a lot of people. <laughs> okay, you said the same thing. All right. Uh, then you go to recount the debate and conservatives are going to all stop and say the same thing. The first debate isn't correctly described. You're right. It didn't take long to find out that it was full alpha Trump. That's true. God, this guy is irritating. Biden thought every time he spoke, Trump cut him off. Every time Chris Wallace started to ask a question, Trump cut him off. Less than 10 minutes into the first presidential debate of 2020, Trump wouldn't let anyone get a word in edgewise, sidewise or otherwise. I went back and watched it this morning. Do you guys still stand by that description? Yes. Amy? Yes. All right. Let's play the first key agree. intervention by Chris Wallace. Well, all right. Let's, all right. Let's talk. I would, we got a lot to unpack here, gentlemen. We got a lot of time. So <laughs> uh, on health care, and then we'll come back to Roe v. Wade. All right. Mr. President, the Supreme Court will hear a case a week after the election in which the Trump administration, along with 18 state attorneys general, are seeking to overturn That's right. Obamacare, to end Obamacare. You have spent the last... Because they want to give I, good health care. If, if I may ask my question, sir. Good health care. Over uh, the last four years, you have promised to repeal and replace Obamacare, but you have never in these four years come up with a plan, a comprehensive plan yes, to I replace have. Obamacare. Of course I have. Well, I'll I give got you rid of the individual finish, mandate. I'm give you Excuse an me. I got I, rid of the individual mandate, which was a big chunk a of Obamacare. That is absolutely a big thing. That was that, the worst I, I part of Obamacare. Sir, 
Chris, that was the worst part me. of Obama. Let me ask my question. Well, I'll, I'll ask Joe. I, 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 the individual no, mandate I, was the most unpopular aspect of Obamacare. I got rid of it. I'd like and to, we will protect Mr. people President, with I'm the moderator of this debate, and I would like you to let me ask my question, and then you can answer Go your ahead. question. You, in the course of these four years, have never come up with a comprehensive plan to replace Obamacare. And just this last Thursday, you signed a largely symbolic executive order to protect people with pre-existing conditions five days before this debate. So my question, sir, is what is the Trump health care plan? Well, first of all, I guess I'm debating you, not him. But stop. Uh, at that point, I would have pulled a trap door, John. Chris Wallace lost it at that point. He made three accusations, four statements of policy, and he interrupted the president. The first round went fine. Do you understand the conservative critique of Chris Wallace and why Fox News lost its brand that night? I understand the conservative critique of Chris Wallace. Um, I mean, Fox Fox moderated debates often end up with the president slamming the moderator. I mean, it's it's sort of part and parcel. I mean, you remember when Megyn Kelly was uh, the, the Fox host that was doing a primary debate back in 2016. Um, I don't know that Fox lost all conservatives, but I do think that uh, I do understand why people were frustrated with Wallace. I mean, anytime Trump is going back and forth with someone, uh, the people on Trump's side are, are going to be upset with the other, the other guy. But Amy, do you, do you see my... My genuine objection to Chris's is being argumentative. As a lawyer, I would stand up and say, objection to your argument, your honor, argumentative and conclusory. He stated a conclusion about Obamacare. He argued with the president. And it wasn't what a debate moderator is supposed to do, which is ask a simple question and get out of the way. Yeah, well, I know a lot of conservatives were disappointed by that, coupled with the fact that Fox News called Arizona early on election night. And I think that really pissed off a lot of people, too. It did. But that is to me, that's irrelevant because the votes are in and and he lost the election. I've never argued anything, but he lost the election. But I do think these debates and you guys covered the last one. You saw the Hillary debates and you remember uh, Candy Crowley's catastrophic intervention in the Obama Romney debate, John. The center right just doesn't believe it's a fair deal anymore. They don't trust anybody in the media. I think Mike Allen reported it's down to 10 percent of Republicans trust the media. Um, yeah, that doesn't surprise me, Hugh. Doesn't surprise me at all. Um, but also, the media is such a large, uh, you know, sort of sort of a broad canvas. I mean, there's a lot of different media. I mean, there are media I trust. There are media I don't trust. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I think that that question, in and of itself, is likely to, to elicit that kind of an answer. You're probably right. All right, and Lucky, the second thing I want to talk to you about is the most important moment in the debate only gets a paragraph. Page, um, where do you talk about it? I'll, uh, I'll, I'll come back to it. The debate commission unilaterally, Amy Parnes, cancels the second debate. They unilaterally, they don't talk to anybody. They And as you guys say, Biden was elated. Trump was infuriated. What does that tell you about the presidential debate commission? I mean, I, I think they had a decision to make. But I, if you recall at the time, the reason why Biden was elated was because he didn't want to, you know, he was winning. He didn't want to, I think, debates are sort of his weakness. Uh, we talk a little bit about this in the book, verbal blunders, um, his missteps. So, of course, he was he was more than happy to sort of um, 
have that decision. Um, you know, they, they just kind of let that happen and they were fine with it. I think Trump at the time needed um, as much airtime as possible um, to kind of overtake Biden in that moment. Well, he had, he, had, he had lost the first debate by general consensus. John Allen, the Presidential Debate Commission is not supposed to have a substantive role. I think they're done, by the way. I think they're finished. No Republican will ever trust them again. It's made up of 13 never Trumpers. Uh, they all hated Trump and they just declared it was over. They didn't even call the campaigns. Did you have no one on the inside to report on that decision process? Because I think they just tanked for uh, for Biden. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there was a whole lot of debate internally about it, right? I mean, that happened almost instantaneously. Uh, I think you're right that the debate commission, at the very least, is uh, an establishment institution. It's, in fact, all, probably the very definition of an establishment institution. And um, and so the, the likelihood that they certainly weren't going to lean toward Trump. Trump wasn't going to be favored by decision making uh, from the, the debate commission. Um, he picks fights with establishment institutions all the time, and they fight back. And he's then seems surprised that after he's been uh, been scuffing their shoes, that uh, that they're upset by it. But at the same time, um, you know, there were probably a lot of ways to have a negotiation around that, and they immediately, um, you know, just canceled the second debate, which uh, obviously, as you point out, was beneficial to Biden and, and harmful to Trump. Because Trump did, as you detailed, did change his tactics for the third debate, but he only had a chance to change them in the third debate. They basically canceled America's window on the presidency unilaterally. I'm still astonished by it. I'm astonished you only gave it a paragraph. Is that because they closed up? I think their executive director, I think they all went to ground because they knew they screwed up. Is that what happened when you reported it, Amy? Um, I think, if I recall correctly, John and I tried to um, get some answers from them, and I don't think anyone was willing to talk. They're hiding. No, they're, they're hiding. Yeah. All right. Let me talk to you about, I got two more objections. Uh, I looked in the index for polling. There's nothing about polling. Uh, when I talked to the president, I went into the Oval. I won't tell you what he told me, but I told him, you lost the election because of the Wisconsin poll. The Wisconsin poll by my newspaper, The Washington Post and ABC, had former, and I'm quoting from their October 28th piece by Jacqueline Alemany. Former Vice President Joe Biden leads President Trump by 17 points in Wisconsin, according to a new Washington Post ABC poll out this morning. That's a stunning gap less than one week from the election in one of the states Trump picked off in 2016 to pull off his surprise upset over Hillary. It could herald a more substantial win by Biden than some Democrats are afraid to say out loud but are whispering about. 17 points. The actual result was 49.45% to 48.82%, 20,700 votes out of 3,230,000 cast. John Allen, that's the biggest polling miss ever. Did it matter? I think it mattered a lot. Did it matter? Um, I think it mattered, but perhaps in uh, giving Democrats overconfidence about what was going on in the campaign. Um, I, I, I suppose it could have mattered in, in quashing the Trump vote a little bit um, or, uh, or or depressing the Trump vote a little bit, particularly in Wisconsin. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm curious on, on your theory on it here. I think it had a shattering effect on Republican enthusiasm. I know how it affected me. If you're down 17 points in Wisconsin, you're not going to win Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania. If you're down by 17 points in Wisconsin, it's going to be 49 states. And it's what happened when Florida was wrongly called by the media in 2000 
Republican get out the vote operators, they just go home. And so from the 28th on, 17 points. How can you be that wrong, Amy? No, and, and it was closer than a lot of people thought. And that's sort of why we talk a lot about lucky and how close it was. People always question barely. What do you mean by barely? It was so close. I mean, clearly, um, neither camp saw um, how close it was there. Um, and I think that's telling. I mean, I think when you have, when you come so close in key states like that, um, I think that the margin was closer than it was in 2016. And we talked a lot about that. So maybe yes. that poll did diminish, um, you know, um, energy. But I think when you look at how close it was, it could have gone either way. It's 42,000. Go ahead, John. I was just going to say, I also think you that when you see a 17 point poll in Wisconsin, Wisconsin, you should question the validity of that as the news organization putting it out. I mean, 17 points. One of the parties could have put a serial killer up as the nominee and they would be within 17 points in Wisconsin. I mean, it just didn't make sense when it came out. John, it was the Washington Post and ABC News. I, it was a gut punch. I don't think anyone can say that. That's why I told the president. I said, you lost the election that day because everybody's, oh gosh, 17 points. Maybe they're off by five. It's still 12 points. Or maybe they're off by five and it's 24 points and people hate Trump. It was a gut punch and it was repeated again and again and again. Why do polling groups never make major errors on behalf of Republicans? John, I'll throw that one to you. <laughs> they never make major errors on behalf of Republicans, ever, never. Well, I certainly think in the Trump era, there's uh, um, there's something going on, right? Like the pollsters understand that. We write about in the book that uh, the Biden team uh, their pollsters and their data analytics people readjusted their models because they felt like the public polling was too generous to Joe Biden. And they were they wanted to know what was really going on. And still, even after they made adjustments to try to take into account, um, you know, what what colloquially we call the hidden Trump vote, even then the Democratic polling and data analytics were too rosy for what actually happened. So they, they rejiggered their numbers to try to take account for it. And even that didn't work. Uh, Lucky is a wonderful book. But I wonder if the name isn't more like helped because 42,000 votes in three states, Wisconsin, Arizona and Georgia, separated Donald Trump from the presidency. Do we agree on that, Amy? Yes. Yes. It's 42. So the media have to be put on trial here. And I want to talk about Hunter Biden now. You guys discuss Hunter a little bit. Uh, Inexplicably, you do not, however, mention big tech shutdown of the New York Post story on Hunter Biden. Why not, Amy? Um, I, you know, it just wasn't, I know that Republicans really wanted to make this an issue. It was a bit of an issue, but we also thought that it was like a little bit over the top. I think if I'm being honest to you, um, I don't know if John wants to add anything to this. John? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we heard a lot about Hunter Biden in this election um, throughout the course of the campaign, whether you're talking about uh, about the, the sort of Ukraine issues all the way through the laptop discovery um, and what was on that laptop. Um, it just, it felt like we got into it to the degree that we could, to the degree that it was clear that it was affecting the politics, which is what was, you know, what were the next hits going to be from Trump and how did the Biden folks try to deal with that? But I, but also some of it for us is, is un, unsubstantiated, unsubstantiatable, um, and you want to be careful. But I do understand what you're saying in terms of the post having a story that is uh, essentially accurate that just gets kind of clobbered by everyone else. Big tech took it off. Big, ten, big tech censored it. 
And so when I look back, I see Chris Wallace, I see the Washington Post, and I see big tech working with Joe Biden to get him a 42,000 vote win. And he won. There's, you know, I'm, I'm glad you guys exposed. There's no fraud, no more significant fraud than any other election. I'm glad you did that. But I do know why conservatives do not trust the electoral process. It's because of those big three. Now we can talk about stuff that I love in the book. I gave you my big three arguments. Let's get to the good. Yay. Yeah. All right. I want to play for you the key moment. I, I follow. I read this book for the next election, Kamala. Uh, and, and I just read I, I went and made extensive notes. Here's the key moment for Senator Harris in the election. Cut number 24. It is a debate. The first Democratic debate. Actually, it's the third Democratic debate. Vice President Biden, I'm gonna, we're going to get to you. Hang on. We're going to get to stage. I would like to speak I, I, on the issue of race. Seconds, and so we're going to come back to you on, on this again in just a moment. Go for 30 seconds. Okay. So on the issue of race, I couldn't agree more that this is an issue that is still not being talked about truthfully and honestly. I, there is not a black man I know, be he a relative, a friend, or a coworker who has not been the subject of some form of profiling or discrimination. Growing up, my sister and I had to deal with the neighbor who told us her parents couldn't play with us because she, because we were black. And I will say also that, that in this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm gonna now direct this at Vice President Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it is personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Amy Parnes, you two do a wonderful job of dissecting the preparation for that moment, the delivery, and especially President Biden's reaction. Will you expand on the audience on that? Sure. I mean, that moment was planned. We go into the prep of it. And um, she was she came out. Kamala Harris um, had a pretty good launch. And then her um, campaign wasn't going so well. And they felt like they needed internally a moment um, for her to, to shine, if you will. And so they picked this moment. They rehearsed it. We go behind the scenes on on what they did and how they did it. And um, so it wasn't a spontaneous moment. It was obviously planned. Um, the Biden people, Biden was really irked by it. Um, in a commercial break, he basically calls it BS. Um, and I think it kind of stayed with them the entire time um, as he was choosing a VP. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why he was kind of looking around until the very last minute. I think Lucky has the best description of the vice presidential process that I've read. It's a fascinating, it, it affects American politics for the next generation. The decision to put Kamala Harris on the ticket probably wins the election for Joe Biden, and it puts her in a position to be the front runner in four years, because I don't think he's running again. 
And it all comes down to their overcoming their distaste for that moment, John. First of all, why did Biden feel so betrayed? That comes through in Lucky. Yeah, so uh, number one, uh, it was because Kamala Harris had a relationship with, uh, a professional relationship with uh, with Bo Biden, the son, uh, the late son of Joe Biden. And so uh, there was some feeling there that they had, uh, you know, mutual uh you know, mutual regard for, for Biden's son, and they talked to each other before, and Biden had been helpful to her in her campaigns. Um, so I think that was the sense of betrayal. And I think I think it was so personal, right? She starts with, uh, with you know, I know you're not a racist, or I don't believe you're a racist, which everybody, you know, when she says that, everybody knows what's coming next, right? <laughs> the big hammer about to fall. So, I mean, by, I think Biden looked at it as her really twisting the knife personally. But I also think that he's, unrealistic about how his positions not only in the past but even in this own in this particular campaign might be perceived by a a large share of the democratic electorate a large share of african-americans whether they're democrats or republicans um uh you know i think biden is a little bit blind to to how what she said was hurtful could be hurtful to a lot of people fast forward to the vice presidential selection process and he doesn't want to pick her I mean, she's the obvious choice. She's the sitting United. He's already he's already said he's going to pick a woman. Uh, we're in the middle of the George Floyd uh, protests and the the sort of clash around that across the country. It becomes a, apparent that it's much better off. He's much better off picking an African American. So he's looking at the list of of folks that fit that bill, and and he just doesn't want Kamala Harris. He starts with her and he goes through all these different options, and he finally gets back to her. Uh, and even at the end, we report he calls Jim Clyburn, the, the House Democratic whip from South Carolina, who's so influential in the primary process, calls Jim Clyburn and, and basically says, uh, I, I'm having a problem between my head and my heart. And his head is pick Kamala Harris and his heart is not to pick Kamala Harris. Uh, but he ends up doing what's, what all presidential candidates do, which is to pick the candidate that is least likely to prevent them from winning the presidency. That's it, Amy. And I am astonished the detail that you two have in Lucky. Joe Biden managed to make an already arduous and complicated vice presidential selection process, which every four years iterates into an even more complex labyrinth and Byzantine process. This time, Team Biden came up with two sets of vetters. What was the theory there? I'm sorry, two sets of vetters? Yeah, for the vice presidential candidate. They had uh, Chris Dodd on Team A and Jake Sullivan on Team B. <laughs> um, I, John, do you want to answer this question? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'm not sure the theory is anything other than trying to, um, to give a, a nice giveaway, give some prominence to a few people, because the folks who did the interviews, those uh, two teams, which it was actually Chris Dodd and uh, Lisa Blunt Rochester, Eric Garcetti, and uh, a former, a longtime Biden lawyer um, whose, whose name is escaping me right now. Um, but I think they were just trying, for the most part, trying to uh, to give some something for Chris Dodd and Garcetti and Rochester to do that made them sound prominent because most of the vetting is actually done by law firms. Um, and, you know, there are some political questions that are involved, but uh, ultimately that decision was going to be made by Joe Biden. I couldn't believe Garcetti was involved in any way, shape or form. I mean, it's just that astonished me. So, look, they come down to Karen Bass and the mayor of Atlanta and a couple other people and Kamala Harris and torpedoes get dropped in the water and everybody but Kamala. And they blame 
Kamala. And she says, oh, no, 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 no. Well, who did it? <laughs> well, I think they were all kind of, they were all out for her a little bit, which we reported in the book. And, you know, what's interesting, Hugh, is that Gretchen Whitmer, which people had sort of discounted from the start, was, I think, one of the leading contenders. And I think that when when he talks to Jim Clyburn about this battle between his head and his heart, he had always sort of seen Whitmer as more closely aligned with his genius. He had always kind of liked her throughout the process and felt like she would be um, a good VP. And it's interesting to see how close she came in the end. I think a lot of people thought Susan Rice would be um, the last um, kind of the runner up. But I think Gretchen Whitmer was. Oh, interesting. Now, now, John, there really was no choice. And Amy Klobuchar, I believe you quote Amy Klobuchar uh, as calling Joe Biden and saying you can't have two white moderates after George Floyd has been murdered. Is that correct? Yes. And so it was a decision that was made for Biden. He was lucky in that regard. He couldn't make a bad choice. He couldn't come up. And I, I like Vice President Quayle, don't get me wrong, but it was a bad choice in retrospect. He was boxed in, was he not, to Kamala Harris? Pretty close to it. I mean, when you look at her uh, her resume and her abilities and, um, you know, the, the testing that she's gone through on the campaign trial, even though she, she lost, um, you know, anybody else would have been a, a wild risk compared to her, right? Susan Rice would have been a huge risk, I think. Uh, we would have been talking about Benghazi through the last couple of months of the campaign. Uh, plus, Susan Rice has now never run for office before. You look at, um, you know, Stacey Abrams uh, hasn't won office before. I mean, I mean, at the, you know, even at the statewide level. So um, it would have been a huge risk to take. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Time for a pause now in this edition of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I want to remind you that our sponsor is andrewandtodd.com. There with Sierra Pacific, they lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower. They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no money down mortgages. They help you refinance. So, if you need to get money out of your house, or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888-888-1172. Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and the interview. There is always a best line in every book. I don't know which one of you wrote the best line in this book. It's on page uh, 324. Harris, quote, survived the process of elimination just as Joe Biden had done in the primary her job now was to make history without making news. Who owns that line? John Allen. I think, 
<laughs> so, John, you get the news. So that is the problem, right? Uh, a vice presidential candidate has three jobs. The acceptance speech. This was a phone call. The convention speech and the debate. She had done a terrible job in the primary campaign. How did she get better? Uh, I think she watched the discipline that Biden showed. Um, and some of that was outside his control. But I think, you know, Biden had been an undisciplined candidate his entire career. Now he had message control and message discipline, and it had served him well, um, certainly in the primary, but also in the general election. I, I, she knew that she was coming onto a team that very strictly wanted to control uh, control that message and that if she was going to take that job, she was going to have to do it herself. And I think in some ways um, she was able to demonstrate uh, that self-control during uh, during the selection process when when it was leaked um, that that Chris Dodd had kind of pushed her on the, the school busing moment that you played earlier and you know what she was thinking and and her team didn't fire back at Dodd she didn't fire back at Dodd they didn't get in the mix on that and I you know we write about this but we you know Amy and I took that as a a sign from the Harris team to the Biden team that she could you know withstand an attack and not really feel like she needed to to respond to everything, which is, I think, what the Biden people believe was carrying Joe Biden. Amy Parn, go ahead. I feel like um, they needed, you know, Kamala Harris was kind of campaigning for this job, as we report. And I think a lot of um, the naysayers felt like she um, would kind of counter interact um, and wasn't a team player um, on you know, as being a surrogate, even before she was picked. And I think she really was desperate to show that she could be a team player in that moment. I had very good friends on the Mondale campaign in 1992, the vice presidential campaign, and not Mondale, uh, Gore. And it was very difficult to get Al Gore to play team ball. Uh, he wanted to be out there talking about Al Gore issues, but that's not the vice presidency. In fact, John Allen, I'll throw this at you. I've had a very smart DC insider explain to me that if you want to understand the Beltway, merge House of Cards with Veep. And that's what you end up with is both both aspects are true. How is Kamala Harris going to do as a vice president, sort of like Veep, but with ambitions of House of Cards? It's <laughs> a great question, Hugh. I, I mean, I, I think it remains to be seen. One of the issues for her is that Biden is keeping her so close. Um, and in one way, uh, people can read that, and I think Amy does. This is a, a divide between me and Amy a little bit. Um, you know, people can read that as him setting her up to run uh, in four years. Um, but the 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 flip side of that is it also means she can't get out ahead of him, um, and so he's he's keeping a pretty close eye on her. Um, and you know, I believe that he's keeping his options open um, to, to possibly run again. Amy, why do you what do you disagree with John on that? What's the analysis disagreement there? Well, it's just interesting how she's been. She is in every camera shot with him. She is in the room for every major announcement. Um, she is by his side for everything. Um, and I wrote about this recently. And I think he is sort of, I think, positioning her. I do agree with John that he's also kind of keeping his eye on her and kind of preventing her from getting out and campaigning and getting out in front of his message. Um, but I do think that, you know, it, it for they, they keep trying to portray the Biden-Harris administration um, so much more than Obama-Biden. And I, I do think that in a way he's kind of giving her a little bit of a leg up um, on, in the race and, and, and pushing her forward a bit to carry on the legacy. We have I mean, uh, Hugh, did you ever, Hugh, did you ever watch the, the show Sons of Anarchy? 
about no. the motorcycle club? No. Okay, well, it's a, the top two guys in that uh, that show was on for, I don't know, eight years or so. Uh, Clay and Jax, they're like always jockeying for position, the, the top guy and the younger one that's going to eventually take over for him. And uh, and I think that's what you see with Biden and Harris. You know, you keep your keep your number two close, but, you know, you watch, watch for whether they're trying to kick you from the, the other motorcycle. That's the old Francis Ford Coppola line from The Godfather. Keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. I don't watch Motorcycle Outlaw. I'm, I'm the Ted Lasso of talk radio. I only watch happy shows. Have you guys watched Ted Lasso, by the way? It's phenomenal. Amy? I have not. Oh, Amy, it's phenomenal. It is. It is I, I now own the title of the Ted Lasso of talk radio. Uh, I want to go back to, again, Kamala Harris, because I think she is the most easily identifiable, significant player in American politics for the next five years. Why did she collapse John Allen? She had a great launch. I was, you know, I used to do the Washington Post poll every week where they did the pundit polls. I always had her as number one and Joe Biden number 15. Uh, I thought she was going to run away with it. What happened to her campaign? You describe it lucky, but explain it to the audience. I mean, I think the key factor is that there wasn't good enough planning. um, And certainly there wasn't good enough planning for following up on what she made as big moments. I mean, if you look at her as um, like any politician, as the um, the face of an organization, the face of a campaign. She's very good at uh, hitting the debate stage moment, as we just talked about. She's very good at the rollout, um, you know, the launch, the big speech, and you know, the, where you need some mass charisma and energy. She's great at that stuff. But there was never really a plan to uh, to capitalize on the the you know momentum that she could potentially get from that. Um, there was division within her campaign. Her, you know, she had, had tapped her sister to be the head of her campaign organization uh, on one level as the campaign chairman, and then uh, had another campaign manager. They were constantly clashing over decisions, and uh, you know, Harris wasn't able to manage that. Um, and I think that was a problem for her and the inability to, you know, follow through on those big moments and, and turn them into momentum uh, was also a big problem for her. But I also think that to some extent. Uh, the Democratic primary electorate was collectively uh, worried about the prospects of, of nominating a black woman to take on Trump, um, you know, after the experience of 2016, when so many of them believe um, that uh, Hillary Clinton lost in part because of her gender. Who brought the discipline to the Biden campaign to stay in the basement? I mocked it every day. So did every other person who was hoping for Trump to win. And I was uh, just very avowedly pro-Trump for a bunch of reasons, especially court appointments. Who kept Joe Biden in the basement? Who who gets the credit for persuading him to stay in the basement? I think a lot of people on his team wanted him to, um, thought that it was the right decision. Um, he could sort of be a leader in terms of staying home and that kind of thing. But, I mean, what it did was, and we talk about this a bit in the book, they were always so worried about his um, his. The, the way he does make these verbal gaffes and um, he he obviously has that problem. And, and they at one point were talking about tweaking his schedule so that they would kind of keep him um, to daytime speeches and kind of away from speaking at night where they felt like that was his time where he did make the most gaffes. Um, and so I think what this did was it kind of kept him home. Um, it kept sort of the light on Trump, um, Trump could kind of implode. And, you know, secretly behind the scenes, I think they all kind of felt 
this sort of sigh of relief. And they were basically saying, and we have this quote in the book from Anita Dunn, a senior advisor, who essentially says um, COVID was the best thing that ever happened to him. Um, and that's sort of what they were saying behind the scenes, because it did kind of keep him off the trail um, and it did keep him, keep him from making these um, verbal blunders that he's so um, famous for. Uh, he's an accidental president. You know, I, I, the blue collar uh, boom was real in January of last year when I began to cover the virus that had escaped from Wuhan. It was real, but not real enough that it even made it significantly into the Democratic debates, John Allen. The last one was an NBC debate. I work for NBC. I'm the first to say they didn't press on Wuhan because it didn't matter at that point. If Trump had done anything differently, if he had stayed off of the briefings and allowed Mike Pence to do the briefings, do you think he would have won, John Allen? I think without COVID, he, he wins. Um, it, uh, all I can say is the people high up and close to Biden told us they believed that if, if Trump had just been a little bit more compassionate, um, that he would have won. Uh, now, I, I want to go to one more bit of detail of Lucky. This is why political junkies love this book so much. I dealt with Liz Smith all the time, begging her to get Pete Buttigieg on. I got him on once, and I harassed her, friendly tweets back and forth. You write about Liz Smith that she's half political savant and half Tommy gun. Well, I'm the Tommy gun recipient, all right? So I, I got a lot of Liz Smith Tommy gun. So I understand it completely. But the story you tell about the Des Moines poll and the fact that Liz Smith got CNN to kill it is such an eye-opening anecdote about American politics and the incestuous relationship of media with politics. I'd like you to recount it. I don't know who's got the lead on this. I'll leave it up to you two. Who, who wants to Amy, take the lead? Amy, you go for it. Um, well, I, I just think, I mean, you're right. Liz Smith and anyone who knows her knows she is relentless. And so when they find out that um, the Des Moines um, poll has sort of gone afoul. Um, Liz is basically on the hunt to find out what happened, and she is killing it. She wants to kill it, and so she does. She is essentially um, speed dialing um, the folks at CNN um, and anyone who will listen, you know, and is basically like, you have to kill this poll. It's not right. It's um, it's a botched poll. Um, and she does. She stays on top of it. She puts even her people on it. Um, they are exchanging messages. And by the end of the day, um, they successfully kill the poll. And what, what I love uh, about your details, they go to David, they go to Mark Preston. They finally get it kicked upstairs to Jeff Zucker and they yeah. CNN kills the poll that they paid for. What was the substantive objection to the poll? So the issue was that there was one phone call uh, in all of the polling in which, uh, at least so far as they could tell, in which Pete Buttigieg's name was left off the list of people who were read to the to the poll recipient, basically. And so that person wasn't allowed to choose Pete Buttigieg. Um, and they, you know, and the, the Buttigieg team found out about this and they went to work to kill the poll, which by the time, so they set the groundwork uh, that there was a problem with the poll early, but they didn't try to kill it until they found out um, that Pete was uh, was in third place in the poll behind Bernie and Warren and, and just a little bit ahead of uh, Biden. And at the time, what this poll was going to do was show that Bernie Sanders was going to win. It would have given him 48 hours of great coverage heading into the caucuses. 
and likely would have drowned out the other, you know, the other candidates, and including Pete. And at that point, Pete really needed to win Iowa to be able to continue on in the race. So, uh, you know, Liz and her team, um, you know, sort of seed the ground with all these reporters uh, and, and say, look, there's something funky with this poll. And then once they find out that uh, their guy has done really poorly, <laughs> Uh, they, uh, you know, they sort of go into overdrive and they go to CNN and say, you can't put out a dubious poll. You, you know, Liz is dialing back and forth with the, the, you know, guys at CNN and she's trying to get them to believe that they need to kill the poll. And she says, it's going to look bad for you. And people are going to say you're fake news. And, um, ultimately, uh, you know, they pull the trigger and decide to, uh, decide to kill the poll. But, um, <laughs> quite a lot of, I mean, I guess from, you know, from the perspective of the reader, I hope they get back get back there and see how things really work. And that's it. Um, that, you know, touchdown. It's a case study in the very thin membrane between the campaigns and news organizations. It's not even a membrane. It, there is no separation. And I, I don't think anyone really knows how incestuous it is between these campaigns. The, the, the networks made a lot of money on the Democratic campaign. They did town halls. They did debates. You detail it all in, in Lucky. But I, I think the American voters are going to be a little bit, um, maybe a lot, put off by the idea that an operative can kill a poll. Do you guys under? Do you agree with me on that? Yeah, yeah I think a lot of people will be put off. It was by such that. an important part of the book. Oh, I think it's the scoop of the scoop. Uh, and they danced around. Uh, I love. It. We killed the poll. We killed the poll. They dance around. All right. Let me close by talking to you about Ron Klain. Uh, Ron is a colleague. Uh, I don't know him well, but I know him well enough, and we get along fine. I have great admiration for his handling of uh, pandemic. He's a figure in this book who's there all the time, and now I think he is uh, sort of deputy president. What are your impressions of Ron Klain's contribution to Joe Biden's win and his role now? Let me start with you, Amy, and I'll end with John. I definitely think, I mean, he's a longtime Biden guy, even though he was pulled off into Hillary land in 2016, but he is. He's one of the Biden poobahs, as we call them. Um, he knows he knows the president almost better than anyone. Um, the president obviously trusts him. He made him his chief of staff. And I know a lot of people are essentially calling him deputy president. Um, and, and that, in, in some respects, it's true. I think that the chief of staff does do a lot at the White House. And I think Ron Klain, because of his expertise with um, pandemics and disease, um, has kind of stepped in um, as sort of a de facto almost, um, you know, leader on this. And I know that the president really relies on him um, and his judgment on these kinds of things. Uh, uh, John Allen, what's your assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think all chiefs of staff, to Tavi's point, have a lot of power. I mean, if the process works right, the president has to make very few decisions. Um, and I think, um, you know, Republicans and Democrats alike would recognize that model where, uh, only the things where the people below him disagree uh, get kicked up to the president um, is, is kind of the best the best model, the way it's supposed to work. And I think we claim that it does work that way for the moment. Um, that said, uh, I think Klain's role has has evolved and strengthened over the course of time. I, mean, I think at the beginning of this campaign, he was one of the guys in the room. Now he's the guy in the room. Yeah. yeah. Let me close by talking about Team Trump. Because I don't want to do an entire interview about the definitive book on on 2020, Lucky, and not talk about what you I, I think you diagnosed it. Brad Parscale's collapse. 
occurs at a, I don't think there's a parallel. I know that Ronald Reagan fired John Sears early in the campaign of 1980. That is to me probably the closest thing to the collapse of Brad Parscale. John, I'll give this one to you. What happened there? I mean, ultimately, I think uh, there were a lot of complaints, a lot of frustrations with the campaign operation and with Trump himself uh, within Trump's orbit. And it all sort of got placed on Brad's shoulders. Um, that's not to say that he didn't have his flaws as a campaign manager. He certainly did. Um, but when, once they, and we write about this in the book, you know, the president wants to get out and do, uh, do his first big rally. He's anxious to get back out on the campaign trail. It's the time at which he's like most effective uh, politically, and it excites him and energizes him. And he hasn't had that for months. So they want to go out on the campaign trail. Uh, Parscale puts together this plan. He wants to do it in Florida, wants to do open air events. Trump's not having it. He wants to do it inside an arena. He wants to show uh, that, that COVID's not going to stop him from doing his normal behavior. So they decide to go to Tulsa. Uh, people may remember the Tulsa rally. There was a lot of uh, hubbub around it. Trump is frustrated there weren't enough people. Um, and it becomes this sort of touchstone for all of the other things uh, that people are unhappy with uh, about the campaign. And ultimately, um, you know, look, Jared Kushner signed off on all those decisions. Donald Trump signed off on all those decisions. But ultimately, somebody was going to take a fall for, um, you know, what turned into a debacle around Tulsa and, and more broadly, I think, a directional challenge for the president, where a lot of the Republican Party looked at him and said, He's, he's running off a cliff right now, and, and we need to get him back on track to, to try to win the election. Um, so Brad becomes sort of the focal point for, for all of that. So my assessment on President Trump now is that up until January 5, he was clearly the front runner for the nomination in 2024 uh, because he barely lost after a series of fiascos from Brad Parscale to Tulsa to the debates to the and a, a series of interventions by media to crush him. He barely lost, barely. So the Trump phenomenon is really January 6th happens. Amy, what is his viability as a candidate going forward? Well, it's still the Trump party, wouldn't you agree, Hugh? I mean, that's that's the big takeaway here is that he's still getting support. Um, you know, um, I think people are still kind of deferring to him. They're still blind to, to see him. Um, so I think he's going to campaign for this. We talked to someone the other day who says that, He's obviously still in the running. He still wants to run for president again, and, and he's going to do that. And I think as of right now, he is the front runner. Uh, it's an interview, not a debate. So I, I, I don't want to do it. With you. I don't think it's the party of Trump anymore, but that's a long conversation. I want to ask John the same question based on if you're getting ready to write comeback or meltdown or chaos, whatever the one word title will be. Shattered was a great one word title. Lucky your franchise is one word titles. It might be chaos. What's Trump's role going to be? Um, Godfather, Kingmaker. Um, there, uh, Amy is right that there's nobody who's more influential in the Republican Party. That's and true. I, I'm, That's true. I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that, you know, all things being equal, if he, if he ran, he'd have a good chance of winning the Republican nomination. What I am not so certain about is that he would have a good chance of winning the general election after January 6th. I think that's going to be a lot tougher. And it, it, it divides Republican. I mean, Trump, even though it's not a, an even divide, it's a, a pretty passionate and, and angry divide of the 10% of Republicans who are, are sort of never Trump, but still could have values otherwise um, that identify with at least the remnants of the Republican Party. Yeah, so the, when I say remnants, I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way. I just mean 
what what is left after that 10% moves out. So the 90% of the Republican Party, the 10% still agrees with them on so many things. Now, the 75 million that voted for Trump are still there. The 80 million that voted for Biden are still there. But the Republicans did phenomenally well in the House. They did uh, uh, poorly in the Senate because of the Georgia debacle and uh, uh, President Trump's post-campaign in January, uh, not January 6th, that happened before that, but just a phenomenal series of, of missteps. My question is, um, 2022, you have redistricting. The Republicans have already won the House. I mean, I'm just convinced they've already won the House. They have to be incompetent at the business of gerrymandering uh, uh, in a way that Democrats aren't incompetent to lose the House. And they've got a pretty tight race on the Senate side. So it's going to be very competitive. Do you really think Joe Biden is going to run based upon everything that's in lucky? I don't think he has the energy to run, Amy. No, definitely. I, I always thought that he was going to be a transitional president. That was sort of what he was telegraphing the entire time. And I do think that um, he kind of was just in the race to take this away from Trump. Um, and that was his whole message. Um, and I, I do think he's aiming to pass the baton to someone, whether it be um, his vice president or someone else. So will he play John Allen, the godfather role that you suggested Donald Trump will do, anointing the successor? Or will Joe Biden sit back and do the same thing he did, which is as little as possible? <laughs> um, it's certainly possible. It's certainly possible uh, that he would play a godfather role um, and get engaged. I mean, he was so frustrated that Barack Obama didn't do that. Um, it would be odd to see him then, you know, wash his hands of the future of the Democratic Party, right? He said that he wants to be engaged in that. Um, you know, I'm still not convinced that he won't run. I think if there's a, uh, you know, to your point, Republicans are in a good position to take over the House. Um, it is unlikely that you're going to see a Senate that's more than a, a seat or two away from dead even. Um, and so it, it could be that Joe Biden comes out of the midterms and, and sees himself as the only Democrat who can hold on to the presidency for his Party. He certainly saw himself as the only one who could win it last time. And for, you know, the last however many years, 40, 40 plus years, he's seen himself as the best person to be president. OK, five more minutes, because I got to ask you about Dr. Jill Biden. I think she's a fantastic force in the book. I think she's very smart, very wise and very uh, candid with her husband. Do you think she wants him to go through this again, Amy? <laughs> I don't know. And we have a, a kind of a scene, an anecdote in the book where she sees that he's not doing well in the primary and she's kind of losing faith in him too. And he uh, basically tells her and keeps telling her to hang on, Bill, hang on till South Carolina. Um, I, I think that she probably would, I don't know. My guess is that she wouldn't want to do this whole thing again, just like a lot of political spouses. John Allen, last word to you. Yeah, I'm not sure she wanted him to run this time. <laughs> You know? yeah. So I, I, I don't think she wants her to run again. I think she's all right not being first lady. I think she's probably pretty happy to be first lady, but I'm, I'm sure she's all right being the former first lady, too. If anyone wants to be deterred from running for president, read Lucky, how Joe Biden barely won the president. Too much depends on chance. Too much can go wrong. Too many people are out to get you. Uh, congratulations to you both. Another absorbing, wonderful, addictive read in Lucky. And I hope to see you again soon. Thank you, John. Thank you, Amy. Thank, Thank you. you.